Hi everybody, welcome to the fifth episode of Architecture, Business and Design. I am here with John Mack, the Design Director at HLW. I'm very excited. He's worked on some of the biggest projects in New York City and some of the biggest projects around the world. Thank you, John, so much for coming. You're welcome. So, uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, again, you've worked on some of the biggest projects in the world. And what, what was the point in your career when you said, well, I am. I made it, so to speak. Or... Um, I, I keep thinking that. <laughs> I, I think that um, maybe it's a, it's a healthy reaction that you never think you kind of made it. Um, there's always the next thing to do and, yeah. and uh, the next challenge. Um, you know, there have been some, some significant projects that have worked on the kind of uh, pinch me moments that, am I really doing this? Uh, Certainly, the renovation of the Secretary at the United Nations was one of those. Um, when you think back at the, um, when, you, when you take your head out of the day-to-day -day fray of working on a project like that, yeah. and think back at the significance of not only the building in terms of the city, um, but who designed the building? Uh, Corbusier was an, uh, certainly an icon in uh, the architectural world, mm -hmm. um, as well as one of the founders of uh, early founders of HLW, Ralph Walker. Um, and it's been uh, the history of the UN in terms of the making of the building has been really well documented. And so, just to go back through those artifacts. You know, know that you're kind of a part of that continuing history is a pretty pretty cool thing. Because as design partner at such a big firm, HLW started in 1885, right? 1885, and it was an architect and, and an engineer. Wow. So HLW, for those who might not know, um, has worked on the NASA Goddard Space Center. Right. They did work at the United Nations Capital Masters Plan. They've done work with Google, ESPN, JetBlue, YouTube. I mean, they are trusted with some of the biggest projects in today's society. You are design partner at this firm. What do you want to? You're going to have an impact on on design in the future. What did you when you got assigned to that position? What did you want to contribute? What do you want the future of design to look like? Um, good question. Um, a lot of what. We think about it. It's, it's. Yeah, I think that people um, think that there is a um, kind of a sole entity that that uh, marches forward and champions um, all of those causes, and I, that's perpetuated by movies and and you know, to a degree history uh, about that that singular vision. Um, Today it's very, very different. Um, it is extremely collaborative. There are many partners um, uh, that we work with and collaborate with to do, um, to do those projects. And so it's not as much of a singular vision from my own point of view. I certainly have a point of view in terms of those projects. And I think that, that everyone does, but it's really about um, collectively um, creating that vision, making sure that we're all talking the same language, um, and that uh, I think that overall you get a much better product. And it's not, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be misconstrued as having it um, be designed by committee because it's not. Um, there's a lot of thought and dialogue that go into those projects and the vision for them where they should go. And I think another really important component of that is um, uh, our clients. 
and what their vision is and how that meshes with uh, where we think it should go and how we how we realize that. So, is there any ever any conflict with some of these big projects? Let's say United Nations. I'm guessing you sit down with the director of strategy and a few people at the firm and the client. Is there ever any conflicting viewpoints of how always forward and always? And that's good, yeah, because um, you know there's a quote Anais Nin said: "We don't see things as they are; we see them as we are." Um, and so we all have our own point of view, and we all you know have our vision of what that should be. Um, and so a large part of, of sitting down at the table um, and having those discussions is to hopefully we all see each other's visions and we can then move forward with a clear direction. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what's the future at HLW or what's the, what projects are you guys currently working on that? Uh, a number of projects, ongoing work for Google, who've been a major client of ours for over the last 13 years, which is in, uh, in the tech world a really long time. Um, and so we're um, really have given, been given some great opportunities uh, to work on projects, uh, some major projects on the West Coast that are ongoing, <coughs> and projects uh, here in New York, um, 111th Avenue, really their East Coast campus. Um, uh, as one, and then um, uh, some some projects that I can't mention that are coming up as well. Um, other major projects I'm currently working on a project for a company called IFF, International Flavors and Fragrance. So going from a um, kind of a technology-based company to a perfume and scent and flavor company. Um, Essentially, any anything, uh, any household product that has a scent, odds are they probably created it, uh, as well as fine perfume. So that's really interesting in transforming a uh, an organization like that, uh, who have an incredibly great product, uh, and giving them a space that really, hopefully, befits that, that product. So, speaking of tech, I think tech is perceived to be a, a West Coast. Phenomena, a lot of startups, Elon Musk, a lot of people started out there. Do you see a movement towards the East anytime soon, or do you think most of those buildings and that culture are going to continue to be in the West? I think it'll, it will always, um, well, uh, I, I think that they have um, the development of. Uh, those startup companies into some major organizations and you know, to to or Apple and, uh, and Google, um, you know, they will obviously always be there as a as a main base uh, or at least a kind of historic base. <clears throat> um, but I see that moving moving pretty much anywhere. I mean, the, the nature of tech or technology allows you to, to do that from any location. So. New York certainly is an East Coast, but I think moving forward, the model is really going to be pretty much anywhere. I think, uh, and I hate to use the word second tier cities, but uh, you know, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, um, and it's really going to follow where people um, where people want to live and work. And I think that that's been, uh, aside from leading the industry in um, in terms of what they do, it's really how they do it and how they treat employees and the freedom that they've given them. Um, and that is, I think, just as 
as earth-breaking, uh, earth-shattering, as uh, groundbreaking as um, what they've done in terms of the technology. So what's interesting is we had an, uh, an interior designer that we interviewed on the podcast, and she was speaking about how the tech office spaces have become open, open space. It might be a couch and people are just on their laptop. And she was, uh, I believe, citing some statistics about how that's made the office environment less interactive and uh, I guess caused uh, caused some problems in the in the office. Do you think do you think that's true or do you think it should go back to cubicles or do you think open spaces is the way tech should or the offices of the future should be? I think it is however it best works for your organization. There have been many articles recently. You know, I, I, it's a large pendulum, and that pendulum swings back and forth. Um, the pendulum has swung pretty far <clears throat> to the open office environment. I think a lot, a lot of the articles that have been written uh, more recently have been a, uh, coming out against against that. Mm -hmm. Many of the articles were, that were written are. Um, uh, a little one-sided in terms of their viewpoint and really didn't talk about if I have a very open office environment, I need just as many enclosed spaces for people to work in that quiet. Um, and it's not an office. Um, so where is that headed? We often say to our clients, here's the spectrum. This is what's going on. This is what your peers are doing. More importantly, these are, this is what people outside of our organizations outside of yours are doing. Because I think you need to look not just when we talk about, um, in this case, benchmarking, uh, not just at what your peer group is doing, but who are the innovators and what are they doing. That may not directly apply to you, but I think it broadens your mind and opens it, uh, your, your view or perspective of what that is. In terms of the office, I, I think that it may swing back a bit, but I, I believe that it is here to stay in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we say to our clients, here it is. And um, now let's talk about what's right for you. Um, so it's really a balance. It's a balance of closed spaces, open spaces. Mm -hmm. Each has their place. Meetings occur anywhere. It's not just traditionally in my office or in a conference room. Um, those amenity spaces have grown. Mm -hmm. um, cafe spaces aren't just places to eat, they're places to meet. Um, and so that has to be calculated into the, to the meeting space just as much as you would conference rooms, etc. Also, what we often find is clients come to us and say, we just don't have enough conference space. We're always uh, running out. Uh, it's overbooked. And you know, what we typically do is, um, you know, through observations and seeing how they actually use those spaces, say to them, it's not that you're, you don't have enough conference space. You have the wrong type of conference space. And we often find people, we often find organizations that have meeting rooms for 8 to 10 or 12 people. Majority of those rooms, maybe 70% of the time, are being occupied by two to three people. So the shift to smaller uh, spaces to meet uh, more of them mm -hmm. kind of re recalibrates that, that idea about conference. So um, 
I, I, I'm very curious about your opinion on this. There's a lot of disruption in many industries. Um, have you seen any disruption in the architecture and interior, interior design space? You know, like because of technology, like Blockbuster went out of business and Netflix took over. Or have you seen any of that? Yeah, it's always happening. Um, uh, degrees of scale disruption now probably comes from organizations like WeWork would be one I could think of, um, and, and other organizations like that that um, are housing companies in temporary space. Um, so it is a bit of a safety belt for those companies where they may not think about um, building new space, but rather use that as a, as a way to relieve um, their real estate needs. So how that affects us, obviously, those, those projects aren't out there to do that yeah. uh, for us to work on. Um, also, other um, other organizations, whether they be real estate or you know the WeWorks of the world, and others are, are getting in a, a bit to the interior design business um, and looking at new models for doing that. Um, and that's a disruption. And I think that those things are ultimately very healthy for our industry. Um, if you aren't thinking about what's coming next, um, odds are, like the blockbusters of the world, um, you will cease to exist. Or the Lehman Brothers. <laughs> or the Lehman Brothers. Is there an active effort to, to stay ahead of the curve, consultants, or you know, bringing young interns to say, hey, guys, what do you think? Where are we missing a step? Or is there videos of people in of powerful executives, executives in 2005 saying the internet is just going to come and go, right? Don't worry about the internet. Speaking to retail people, don't, don't worry about the internet. It's going to come and go. No one's going to buy shoes online. They're going to want to. There's a whole book of, of famous quotes yeah. um, that were totally wrong. Um, you know, one was, how do you make money off an app? Uh, yeah, there's all. You always have to think ahead. You always have to to have your pulse on what's going on um, today and how that may um, may ultimately change or, or affect what you do and how you do it in the future. Um, we have those conversations internally. There are a lot of think tanks out there that uh, are sources that get tapped into as well. Um, and hopefully, you can. Um, the first part is understanding and knowing what's out of it. Knowing what's out there. The second is having a better understanding of it. The third is really how you begin to react to that. Um, uh, but it has to be that reaction um, should be uh, done in a very conscious way that is part and parcel of who you are. Mm -hmm. So you were past president and a fellow of the International Interior Design Association, the IIDA. Correct. What was that experience like? It was incredible. Um, you know, we often, as individuals and firms or firms, um, look at, we call it our competition, um, uh, those firms that we're always competing against for projects. Um, organizations like IIDA, or even you know, IIA and, and ASID, they are, um, they help us understand that we're part of a larger whole. Um, we are part of a community um, and a profession. And that was, I think, the most, one of the more amazing components 
to being president and just really being a member in that organization is to see how deeply people care about what they do, um, about the profession, and about their peers. And some of my best friends work for uh, competitors, my, you know, party. Could be my competitors or are my competitors in other terms, but um, you know there is just a very honest and frank dialogue that we all have, all for the, the kind of greater good. One of our guests was talking to us about uh, the the impact that design can have, and the there was a study done at a prison. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the most suicides in prisons happen when the inmates first go in. And they changed the color of the walls in the bath in the showers, and it drops by twenty five percent. This was that right? Just just changing. The color. And they knew that was the reason why. <laughs> it, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because it um, uh, it may have attributed to that, but design has often been this abstract thing. I often say that. You know, we spend our days trying to turn gray into black and white. Um, there are a lot of quantitative, a lot of quantitative information about many things. Design, probably the least. Um, and so, for a long time, organizations such as IDA have tried to um, try to balance that and try to help bring some quantitative information to. Everything from why is there a lower suicide rate to why, after we've done that renovation, is the firm you're more profitable? Mm -hmm. um, why is that? Um, so that there's one of the metrics that go with that. Um, the um, one example we did uh, Bloomberg's uh, headquarters in London is uh, before the, 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 the new fit out, but we were asked to solve a problem. Uh, and the problem was uh, that vendors would come in to um, meet with Bloomberg employees, and they would spend a lot of time. And so it was kind of eating away at uh, profits and, and just you know, spending too much time with the outside vendors. So um, what we did as a design, a direct design solution to that problem was we built a, um, a series of meeting rooms within the most public space that we could think of, and that was the cafeteria. And they were stand-up meetings, and they were all glass, so there were six of them in a pod, mm -hmm. and they were... Um, there was a, a table you could you could have uh, maybe four people stand at. On the side of that table, there was a time clock, which was set to thirty seconds. So as soon as you plug your laptop in, that would start. The clock would start ticking. <clears throat> there was a large um, uh, kind of vertical surfboard, which was uh, LED uh, lit in green. And when your thirty second thirty um, minutes were up. So if you're going too long with a vendor, that would start flashing red so that everyone in the cafe space knew that you were going over your time limit. And so that, that solved problem. <laughs> so that was, is probably the, the most poignant solution I can think of where design had a direct impact on uh, the business problem. So let's talk about New York City. I've often wondered, even as a little kid, why we never had well, we did at one point, but why we don't have the tallest building in the world? New York City to me represents like big, financial, powerful space in, in, in the world. 
why has there never been? Do you have any opinion or? Because I know Trump at one point was pushing for it. He was saying like, oh, we should have had the. Oh, I'm sure he will. <laughs> Why don't we have the tallest building in the world? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a never-ending quest. Mm -hmm. You have it, somebody else builds another one. And where does it stop? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would personally um, rather focus on uh, doing good buildings and tallest building, doing spaces that uh, <clears throat> are part of the kind of urban environment and structure create um, more urban spaces in New York, which I think you're seeing more of now. There's more of a consciousness uh, about places for people. And I don't necessarily think tallest buildings in the world are great spaces for people. Do you think um, it will? There's going to be a lot of maintaining the, the current look of New York City, reserving, uh, I, I guess, historical landmarks, or will that eventually just be I would planned? hope so. We, you know, New York, probably more so than some other cities, and I can think of you know, London, for example, although there are tall buildings there and very modern, mm -hmm. uh, there is uh, respect for the of the urban fabric that's there in New York um, has always been more progressive, probably to the extent of going overboard. Like, so people like um, Jane Jacobs you know, had to step in and uh, in safe neighborhoods because it would have eaten itself alive. And all of those great uh, neighborhoods and structures uh, make it fun away. That brings up a, a, I think a problem that's currently being talked about, which is Brooklyn, because there's a lot of developers wanting to you know, build high risers. Um, and they, I guess there's an effort to change the code around Brooklyn so you could change some, I guess, residential areas for. Or, or manufacturing areas for high-rise. Do you see that as a, a coming problem? Or do you think the government will stay steady and, and make sure that affordable housing is still available in Brooklyn? Um, well, there will certainly always be development. <laughs> Bad and good. Hopefully mostly good. Uh, there have been um, taller buildings, um, more sliver buildings built. Um, I've heard some architects argue uh, that it is better to be have a smaller footprint and go taller than to have a larger footprint on the site, um, where it may perhaps block views of, of existing uh, residents. You could look to um, Williamsburg as an example of that, uh, some of the development uh, there. Um, you know, being as sensitive as they could to making that and keeping that connection to uh, to the water views. Um, I don't know. You know, it's it's hopefully hopefully there's some balance and sanity to it. Mm -hmm. um, the move to affordable housing uh, um, and having greater uh, affordable housing within uh, projects. Um, 
uh, gives developers an opportunity to create larger buildings. Um, so it's just balancing the pros and cons of each of those. So anytime, uh, I'm guessing, because I've never done it, anytime a new building is being built, I'm sure they want to make it as aesthetically pleasing as possible. But if you are building something for affordable housing, you've got to balance, you know, the costs and is that? No, it, it is. Um, it's it's essentially, you know, I, I, I'm an architect, but I don't do residential towers, so um, I'm certainly not an expert at that. Um, it's not so much that uh, if there is a development project going up, and I can. For example, there's one in uh, at the edge of Cobble Hill and in uh, near Atlantic Avenue in the water, and um, there were two studies done for that. One with um, uh, creating more affordable housing within that uh, within the development. Another was the As of Right Tower. I, I believe one was a roughly a 50-story tower that could be built as of right. Um, based on code, and the other were multiple towers um, at varying sizes that would increase the amount the developer could build. I don't think that they're necessarily cutting back on the quality of the buildings themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm certain that uh, maybe some of the finishes within the interiors of those spaces, or more so where they're located within those buildings, um, as, it, as it relates to perhaps view, uh, Etc. Uh, there's a shift in balance, but I think just because uh, it's a you know quote affordable housing, it should not uh, diminish the quality of what that is. So I've heard um, many CEOs say that for all the flack that millennials get, they should be um, they should be proud of the fact they're that they're making corporations care more. Through advocating either through Twitter or in the streets, do you, what advice do you have for conscience interior designers or architects that are coming up in, in that are coming into the industry? Um, social responsibility and, and kind of all of those um, attributes that have been associated with um, with millennials. Uh, you know, now more than ever, I think that the industry, uh, hopefully society as a whole, um, has embraced a lot of those issues. There's a lot more to go uh, in terms of what we can do. But I think about sustainability, I can think 20 years ago, the amount of just products that were available. Um, uh, as uh, sustainable products, whether they be um, cradle to cradle, or, uh, or at least processes um, that were, were part of the components of those products, but it, it, they are much more prevalent and, and available, and they have—they've uh, really begun to um, become an everyday norm. And that's just products. There's also processes. I'm certainly not a, an expert. That, in that at all, but I think that more so now, um, those are available. Um, uh, there's a social consciousness, and I think that it will only improve uh, and grow as the next generation comes into 
uh, workforce, be it design or, or other companies, and just have really a conscience, a conscience and a say about um, what goes on and what happens. So let's say there's an interior designer or an architect who just got out of college and they dream about working on with HLW on some of these projects. How would they, what advice would you give them to be looked at by a firm like HLW? Um, you know, there are those basic prerequisites of you know, having a good portfolio, um, having an attitude about your projects and, and the way of think, thinking. Um, when I look at a portfolio, for example, um, I want to look at some uh, someone's work who has uh, it's consistent, but there's also a thought process there and a process. There's the ability to communicate ideas, um, not just with computer-generated renderings, but with sketches, so I can understand that where their mind, how their mind thinks, and that's extremely important. I think that anyone coming out of school today, or any new designer who's starting, my my um, uh, recommendations for them would be um, to draw, to have a sketchbook to observe. Mm -hmm. I think that there is um, a heavy reliance on um, on technology, um, but it's only a tool. And it really doesn't um, replace uh, the thought process. I think it's also um, uh, understanding scale, um, <laughs> print to scale. I often have designers who will hand me, draw, hand me a drawing and say, "What scale is that?" And I'll, what do you mean? Um, um, and it's all you know. Sketching and drawing are all part of how we communicate. It's a it's a, a communication tool, certainly within the architecture and design field. Um, that um, aside, you know, uh, augments and supports the kind of verbal communication. So that would be one of the uh, the biggest things that I would I would look to. That and verbal communication. How you, how you can communicate your ideas. Yeah. Um, we deal um, all the time with um, giving presentations. And it's not, it's very different from college um, and universities where we have to help people understand what we do, have to help them understand what our ideas are. And some of that is done through drawing, um, but also helping uh, verbalize what that is. It's very different to present to a lawyer um, whose world really hangs on words. So I have to be very careful with the word choices that I use um, versus um, you know, other, uh, other clients and CEOs. Some are very good at understanding um, drawings and some are not. So really getting the communication skills in many different ways, shapes, and forms is extremely important. All right. So what, what should people look forward to in regards to HLW or your career? What, what are the next steps? Keep doing good work. <laughs> Be profitable. Um, uh, you know, maintain that organization. So I think our next steps are really um, to grow as an organization, um, to help our clients, um, and to help them understand the impact and ourselves. Um, we have a um, uh, our. Uh, <clears throat> 
values in our office are, we call them the 11 rules of thumb. And they're very, very uh, basic, and I, I can't remember all 11 of them, but um, one of them is understand the impact. Um, uh, lead with why, always be inquisitive. Um, you know, why are we doing this? Are we doing the right thing? Um, and not just uh, not just follow and hopefully lead. Well, John, I really, really want to thank you sincerely because I think, first of all, to have someone of of your experience and your expertise on our podcast, it's great to talk to you. I think the people listening will benefit greatly hearing from you. A lot of people grow up in inner cities or you know, never even have a chance to hear what someone who's been in your position has your opinions on things like this. Um, I think that's great. Thanks so much for coming by, and it was a pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks, Thank you.